This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on Saturday the 30th of October 2021 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, Vincent McAvinney joins me to chat through the day's front pages. Plus, we'll have uh, some sartorial complaints from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. As a child, I would look at pictures of national dress from around the world and feel a little left out as an English person. And now, after the rise of global brands, the triumph of athleisure... I presume that most of those national costumes would be switched out for something from Nike. Bring back the grey suit and a trilby, please. We'll also check in with our correspondent at the Helsinki Book Fair and Andrew Muller tells us what we learned this week. We also learned, and conclusively so, that if people are not enticed by the offer of a free, safe protection against the worst ravages of a potentially fatal disease, they're not going to be enticed by much. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. President Joe Biden called US government actions clumsy during his first meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron since a diplomatic crisis erupted last month over a US security pact with Britain and Australia. The pair met yesterday at the G20 summit in Rome to try and turn the page on a relationship that came under strain over the US-Australia Security Alliance, known as AUKUS, a pact that effectively cancelled a 2016 Australian-French submarine deal. Over a dozen LGBT Afghans reached the United Kingdom after interventions from Foreign Minister Liz Truss and gay rights organisations, the British government said on Friday. Following the arrival of a first group of 29 LGBT Afghans on Friday, more LGBT Afghans are expected to arrive in the UK in the coming months. Under Taliban rule, LGBT people are amongst the most vulnerable in Afghanistan, with many facing increased levels of persecution, discrimination and assault. And New York City officials are preparing for shortages of firefighters, police officers and other first responders as a showdown looms between the city and its unvaccinated uniformed workforce. Leaders of unions representing firefighters and police officers have said more than one third of their members could be sent home on unpaid leave when enforcement of the COVID-19 vaccine mandate takes effect on Monday. I'm Georgina Godwin and that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, let's have a look through today's newspapers. And I'm pleased to say that joining me this morning is Vincent McAvinney, who's a reporter and a Monocle 24 regular. Uh, he's a UK politics commentator everywhere, Vinny. Every time I turn on the television, there you are. It doesn't matter what channel I'm on. How many people are you Just actually got to keep that freelance hustle going. <laughs> it all started here. This is my first ever broadcasting job eight really? years ago now with you. Yeah, wow. you taught me all I know. Uh, <laughs> no wonder you're so fantastic. <laughs> uh, listen, you've had a really busy week. And of course, it's been a very busy week in news and it's going to get even busier. We've got G20 going on this weekend and then we've got COP26 starting. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you in, have... Just for anyone in Glasgow, not Glasgow, as I just keep hearing on CNN and it's driving me crazy as someone from whose mother is Glass Region, it's driving me nuts. <laughs> Glasgow. Issue a style guide. <laughs> um, but as a kind of run-up to that, you met David Attenborough, who, of course, is our sort of preeminent natural historian. Yes, 
Yes, this was. I mean, I I got a call. Most reporters, you get a call the night before from a planning editor, uh, and they decided to break the harsh news to you first. And it was, we need you at six thirty tomorrow. And you're like, oh, does it need to be then? And then they said to go on a boat with Sir David Attenborough. And I was like, yes, I will absolutely do this. It was absolutely great. I felt like a competition winner. Um, <laughs> the RRS Sir David Attenborough is Britain's new uh, uh, polar research survey vessel. It is over two hundred million pounds. It's state of the art. It was built up in Liverpool and it's going on its maiden voyage uh, down to Antarctica, having done all the sea trials uh, and it's heading off next week. And it came to Greenwich, which is where I live and which is the home of British maritime history for centuries. And it's a ship like we've never seen before. It will be able to do all kinds of incredible research. Um, And I spoke to some of the scientists on board. I spoke to some of the crew. They've got all kinds of robots. Now, the good story about this uh, ship is actually as well that it was voted by the public to be called Boaty McBoatface, (laughs) couple of years ago but the government overruled that calling it Sir David Attenborough which no one can really disagree with but when Sir David Attenborough came on board he took a great photo with the crew and a submersible robot which they decided to christen Boaty McBoatface so he uh, he saw the competition that he beat and it was yeah it was a really great day out Sir David Attenborough um, you know is someone who for decades uh, has taken not just the British public but public service television viewers around the world to the natural world and shown us all of that wonder and that ship is something that will continue that legacy but it is very much down as Sir David Attenborough was saying to our leaders in Glasgow this week and all of us at home in our behaviours to preserve that world that he has he has shown us. Mm. And of course Boris Johnson's been talking about this on the, on the eve of COP26. He's been talking about he's been comparing uh, the state of the world to the fall of the Holy Roman Empire and saying that actually we could uh, could it could be as rapid as that. Um, mm. one, one, one does think that perhaps he is comparing himself to, to, to a Roman empire, mm, emperor. Which one? <laughs> which one would it be? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Off for a fiddle. Um, so, uh, yeah, so huge warnings. China still obviously a problem. Um, we don't know if he's going to be there. He would be assumed uh, Xi Jinping is not going to Yeah, be there. I mean, there's talk that he might kind of zoom into the conference and stuff. Vladimir Putin also not uh, there. I mean, it is going... Vladimir, you're on mute. <laughs> 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 oh gosh. Um yeah, it is, you know, it is going to be quite the conference in Glasgow and you know, reading the coverage today, there are some signs, you know, you have to keep giving people hope. What's I think is really interesting is that I feel like going into this whereas with Paris in 2015 there was still a lot of active climate change denial. And in some corners on the fringes, there are there is that still going on. But the scientific recognition around the world, not just from scientific bodies, but from, you know, chemical, uh, from fossil fuel companies now, they will admit it. Even, you know, the likes of NASA have said this is just very much a fact. Uh, and it feels like there's not really that much of a question anymore. Is this going on? And is this man-made? Mm. That seems to have really been settled, which is quite refreshing. Um, and the public want action. I think, it was, you know, it's um, earning seasons this week, uh, it, well, this in this period for the last quarter. And we got Teslas the other day. And it was really interesting to see just the, you know, the move to EVs is taking off far faster than I think a lot of the traditional car companies thought. Mm. This there is still range anxiety, but the biggest selling car in Europe in the previous month was the Tesla Model 3, mm. um, which is an EV for the first time. And you just have to look at the roads and you just see that that is really taking off and people are on board with it. And yeah, there has been some progress. There's an article on front page in the New York Times uh, that there has been progress with switching to renewables in the last decade. But there has also been this kind of 
effectively wasted period of the of the Trump years, of the Bolsonaro years in particular as mm. well, with the destruction of the Amazon. Uh, and there has to be consensus in the next two weeks uh, from our leaders to get down to 1.5%. Because, you know, I spoke to an investor this week in, in another report who said he's, you know, he's kind of switching investment to from renewables to like climate mitigation, because he just thinks that there isn't going to be consent. So, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, uh, a kind of consensus on what to do. Mm. It is it is a mammoth task that they've got. And I think, you know, Boris Johnson has gone from someone who was a clip that went viral recently when he was mayor of London. I don't think this was even eight, seven years ago, was uh, kind of like denying that it was man-made when he was there, citing an, argu- an article by Piers Corbyn, who's a completely <laughs> discredited... <laughs> You know, I'm doing air quotes here, climate scientist. Um, that it's asked, you know, and it was pointed out to him that none of his articles were peer reviewed, that he's so far outside the scientific consensus and he was still a bit belligerent about it. And now, you know, he will be having briefings from intelligence services, from the top scientists, saying to him, this is an exist- you know, existential threat to the world. It will also destabilize the world. It will lead to huge migrations. It will lead to wars, battles for resources. So there is a real effect coming down the line. Um, and so it's it's for those leaders in Rome and then in Glasgow to try to step up to this because I think it's been shown that the public in the last eighteen months can accept radical changes as long as it's seen to be spread fairly and that there's clear direction on what to doing and there's an end goal and that's what needs to happen now. Clear direction of course is something that we suffer from the lack of here in Britain. A couple of sort of personal things to do with this. I uh, was at an event at the Danish embassy and the ambassador told me that the Danish delegation has the highest number of senior uh, government officials coming. I think seven people but from very very high up in government Mm. Uh, and he, he was very proud. He was showing me the embassy where they've just installed a huge amount of solar panels not only to provide their own electricity but they can then sell that on he said mm. it's the number one goal for denmark is climate change that that is absolutely the thing that they're they're, they're interested in they're talking about and then you compare that with um zimbabwe uh, and um the um that the leaders of zimbabwe have not been allowed into into great britain for mm. 25 years mm. but because this is un that they, they, they can come so emerson munangagwa the 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 president is coming. Uh, he's bringing with him, and bear in mind that the, con- the, the country is broke. People can't eat. Mm-hmm. He's bringing with him a delegation of over a hundred. A couple of years ago, you gave me, I think, a trillion Zimbabwe <laughs> yes. dollar note. I've still got it. it was, yeah. Um, he's bringing with him a delegation of over a hundred people, um, and these are just hangers-on. They're coming to shop. Highland Jolly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, and and all the while, while um, um, mining coal for, for China. I mean. Uh, yeah, it's it's also you know this is the first time there has been a big international meeting in you know two three years. The la- I went to the last G20. It was in Osaka in 2019, and it hasn't been so. On top of all the climate stuff, I think there, as you're saying, these de- there we will see. I think from around the world, big delegations. I know that you you can basically not get a, a hotel room not only in Glasgow but in Edinburgh at the moment, which is about an hour away mm. on the, on the train um, through this period. And I think there's going to be a lot of bilateral offside talks going on, not just about climate, but you know. For certain countries, vaccines is a problem. The inequality of vaccine distribution as well is going to be a big thing. But yeah, it, the lobbying efforts that are going on for this conference uh, behind the scenes will be huge as well. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, that's quite remarkable that Zimbabwe is bringing that many people all the while, as you say, just, you know, sending that coal straight to China. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's... Let's cheer ourselves up a bit, shall we, yeah. with Andrew Muller. He's always got something wry to say. Here he is.
We learned this week that the Ohio Bureau of Motor Vehicles does not know enough about the early history of powered flight. The Buckeye State unveiled new license plates declaring Ohio birthplace of aviation, with that slogan depicted on a banner flying behind a representation of Flyer 1, the pioneering aircraft built by Wilbur and Orville Wright, bicycle mechanics of Dayton, Ohio, and stick with us, this is worth it eventually. However, fooled by the fact that Flyer 1 had propellers at the rear and ailerons at the front, Ohio's cartoonist placed the banner not in the right place, but the wrong one. Hey, just getting started. Arguably more amusingly, we learned that this mishap had reignited Ohio's rivalry with North Carolina vis-a-vis -vis which is the real birthplace of the aeroplane. For while the Wrights were assuredly from Ohio, they first took Flyer 1 airborne in 1903 near Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. And we learned that as social media chortlers piled in on Ohio's drafting error, North Carolina's Department of Transport was unable to rise above joining the mockery, tweeting as follows, as read by Monocle 24's state rivalries desk chief, Christy Evans. You'll leave Ohio alone. They wouldn't know. They weren't there. And that is Ohio's official state rock song, Hang On Sloopy by the McCoys, as played by the Ohio State University Marching Band in the background. Some of us do our research. We also learned, and conclusively so, that if people are not enticed by the offer of a free, safe protection against the worst ravages of a potentially fatal disease, they're not going to be enticed by much. Bothans at the National Bureau of Economic Research in the US. Actually, can we have a round of applause for the word boffins? It's a good word, is boffins. Boffins. The friendless poindexters at the NBER, we learned, have been having a look into vaccine incentives. In various places around the world, these have included, but been by no means limited to, cash, lottery tickets, concert tickets, holiday vouchers, a chance to win a car in a raffle, beer, marijuana, fishing licenses, pickled herring, popcorn, chickens, and in Finland... Buckets. Yeah, my book has got a hole in it. Here is Monocle 24's Bucket Desk Chief, Marcus Hippie, explaining the last of these with all the innate and irrepressible exuberance for which his people are famed. I am from Finland. We are very fond of buckets in Finland. Nothing brings us greater joy than buckets. I'm right now beside myself with delirium merely thinking about my bucket. Anyway, we learned from the NBER's report that none of it makes much difference. So we would appear to have learned a reiteration of the lesson that there is no reasoning with the unreasonable. That said, upon scrutinising the fine print of the NBER's conclusion, we learned that they'd only scrutinised one region in California, where one possibly clinching sweetener had not been offered. Everybody loves buckets. They should promise them buckets. 
But we learned that opportunities await the vaccine hesitant in the United States, other of course than the opportunity for one of those ruinously expensive stays in hospital upon which Americans insist. Ooh. Edgy. Yes, if you are skeptical of evidence and unwilling to act in the public good, you can be a police officer in Florida, where you might one day even feature in a whimsical news review such as this, should you, for example, end up in a freeway chase with a naked drunk on a Segway with a stolen alligator under one arm, which is the kind of thing which does seem to happen in Florida to a perhaps disproportionate extent. Ron DeSantis, governor of the, and finally, state will even pay you to move there. Our $5,000 bonus, that applies to anyone. I mean, you know, if you're in NYPD and you're not getting the support you need and you, you're qualified, you come down here, you're going to get a bonus because we've got your back and it's a way to say thank you. $5,000, you could buy a lot of buckets with that. We learn that there is one jurisdiction on Earth clearly even less fussy than Florida about who it hires to protect and serve. It is the Indian state of Uttar Pradesh, designated as of this monologue the Florida of India, where the local wallopers arrested three Kashmiri Muslim students in Agra for exchanging WhatsApp messages celebrating India's defeat by Pakistan in a cricket match. The trio have been charged with promoting enmity and cyber terrorism. Oh, gone, surely gone, yes! Absolutely done! There are a few things that all concerned should bear in mind here. One, first and foremost, is that this is obviously idiotic and Uttar Pradesh's finest should take a long and rigorous look at themselves. Another is that Pakistan's 10-wicket trouncing of India occurred in a game of T20 cricket, a trivial, footling and undignified barbarism, nothing to do with real cricket, a format of interest only to children and simpletons. And another, possibly self-interested, is that criminalising this kind of behaviour elsewhere in the world could have woeful consequences for, for example, Australians who find themselves living in England during the Looming Ashes series. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller. Andrew Muller there, who is, of course, an Australian living in England, and the ashes are indeed looming. Uh, and uh, one of the ways for those of us from the diaspora, me from Zimbabwe, Andrew from Australia, you from Jersey, all of us far from home, the way we keep in touch, or the way we used to keep in touch, was Facebook. Uh, but that's kind of changing, because we're falling out of love with it in quite a big way. And Facebook itself is changing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you talk to young people now, uh, you know, they are on Instagram, which of course is, is Facebook owned, but Facebook is seen as definitely as a platform for, you know, the your aunts and uncles and older generation, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so Facebook, uh, in the face of many a crisis, there have been huge leaks of data uh, this week internally from the company pointing out all kinds of wrongdoing. Fr uh, Francis Haugen, a whistleblower who testified before the Senate saying Facebook uh, doesn't act, that it puts profits above people. 
uh, and that it is incredibly dangerous, particularly to young people. Instagram being incredibly dangerous and addictive. She was saying the same message this week in Parliament as well. Um, and Facebook, a bit like, you know, it does feel a little bit like the Titanic's hit the iceberg uh, and Mark Zuckerberg's popped up to tell you about tonight's dinner theatre performance rather than, you know, the impending crisis that it's facing because he released this incredibly awkward, strange video uh, renaming the company Meta, um, and it's saying that they're pivoting towards the Metaverse. Um, and the video, you know, it was... Zuckerberg is always parodied with Commander Data, who is an android from Star Trek. And the video felt like something that they have on Star Trek called the holodeck, where you basically, you know, you can, well, in this in this technology, you put a headset on and you create this virtual world that you move around in. And honestly, I think, Everyone just thought after watching it, after 18 months of Zooms, wow, he's actually done it. He's made Zooms even worse than they possibly can be. I don't know anyone really calling out for this. I think the reaction to it has been, why, when we've been locked in our homes, missing social interaction... Would you really want to engage in this? It was very strange. Uh, and, you know, even weirder, former Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg popped up to, to, to sell it to people uh, and gave a very awkward, stunted uh, performance. May uh, I ask you a question, uh, Mark? Dear Mr. Yeah. Boss Friend. Yeah. Yes, Nick, I'm glad you asked that. Because <laughs> yes, there will be some it? kind of safety measure. <laughs> yeah. What kind? I don't know, because I can't figure out how humans actually behave. Um, exactly. If anybody hasn't seen it, they really should watch they it. They should. It's but yeah, it's still, but it shows that the leadership of Facebook are still in pretty willful and active denial about how toxic the company has become, mm. not just to users in terms of, you know, things like the algorithm. You know, the research this week and the leaks showed that, you know, if you sign up as, say, a, a Christian, an example where they created a dummy account where there was a, a Christian woman who labelled herself as being conservative uh, and she was from South Carolina, within 48 hours of signing up with that dummy account on Facebook, the algorithm was pushing far-right political parties to her, QAnon groups, all kinds of denialist groups, essentially. And and the argument is, why is there an algorithm even to push people into those kind of groups? You know, what is that about? And then when you're in the groups, there's so much documented evidence now of people just falling down these rabbit holes, becoming COVID deniers, anti-vaxxers, QAnon supporters. It's leading to family breakdowns. It's leading to divorces. It, it is a really being used to radicalise. And, and they're not facing up to any of these problems. I think it's right that Facebook is, you know, now being compared to big tobacco in that internally from these leaks, we know that they know all of this is going on, but they're just willfully denying it. And perhaps part of the problem is that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and a couple of the big executives have been in it from day one and they cannot see the wood from the trees or they're unwilling to. And I think particularly for Mark Zuckerberg himself, he is just, you know, he is evangelical about his products, but doesn't actually understand people and how they work. I mean, should we all be boycotting then? This is the thing, it's become too big. And, and that was one of the interesting things recently with the outage that happened a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember when WhatsApp, when Instagram and Facebook all went down? Is that I spoke to a tech reporter at the time who said that, if, you know, Facebook bought Instagram and they bought WhatsApp. And what they did at the back end was so heavily integrate all of the systems together to try and say that, oh, yeah, we can't sell it off because it's all so heavily integrated now. And so that is a big move coming. And, you know, it's facing regulators around the world at the moment, but that is a push that's coming in the US uh, that, you know, it should be broken up, that perhaps it is too big. Uh, and, you know, it's not even managing to 
you know, crack down on, on bad content disinformation in the US. But the actual situation around the world, particularly in India, which is its biggest market, you know, it's it's just non-existent there in the controls. There were reports this week about all the kinds of, you know, radicalizing content. And Facebook's, you know, defense is, you know, human, you know, hatred and animosity and, and violence has always been there. And yes, whilst that is, it is true, and, and you know, particularly in India where it's kind of there's an ethnic tones and, and religious tones to it, whilst that's true, you are absolutely fast-tracking it and allowing it to be mainlined without any kinds of, you know, protections. And so, you know, Facebook, it seems with this thing, you know, AOC, the US Senate Demo- uh, uh, Congressional Democrat said, uh, you know, meta, well, you know, Facebook is metastasizing like a cancer through democracies and they just seem at the moment willfully ignorant of trying to fix that problem yeah absolutely um i think that we'll talk about national dress now because that's quite <laughs> okay <laughs> quite uh, uh you're from jersey is there a national well, dress not really i'm half irish half scottish so you know for scotland you've got the kilt that that does it but isn't aren't jerseys named after jersey Jersey cows? No, Jersey, no. Jersey that you put on. Oh, jerseys. Like a cardigan. I'm not sure, actually. I mean, I'm, yeah, potentially. People don't really use the word Jersey here for a cardigan. No, though, not do they? really. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I think there's a bit of like traditional farming outfit, but like there's not, there's not really anything. I mean, I remember I partially as well grew up in Luxembourg and we had, you know, day a day at school every year where you had to wear your national dress. Um, and it is a bit like, you know, even for British people, what do you wear? I mean, it, it's, it's not something that we really have. Yeah, well, South Korea does. Let's hear all about it. On Tuesday lunchtime, I headed over to the South Korean embassy in Kensington for a van donneur. Who doesn't love a van donneur on a Tuesday? I.e., I had to look up what it actually entailed. The reception was to mark the fact that the country's new ambassador... His Excellency Mr Gun Kim had just presented his credentials to the Queen, although via video link. I've met the ambassador a couple of times and he's a skilled diplomat, incredibly engaging, full of fascinating perspectives and generous about his new host city. After our last lunch, he even sent me and my colleagues a gift each, the beauty masks that he swears by. He's a keen champion of the nation's cosmetics industry. The invitation had said, lounge suits, but the ambassador was working the room in a heightened version of national dress. Nobody was going to upstage him today. This included a very tall hat with a very wide brim held in place with a thick chin strap. There were beads draping down from the hat too. Then there were layers of tunics and traditional white-toed shoes to complete the outfit. But what was great was how he so effortlessly and unselfconsciously worked the room as though this actually was his version of a lounge suit. As a child, I would look at pictures of national dress from around the world and feel a little left out as an English person. Canadians clearly went about their daily business draped in seal pelts and with snowshoes strapped to their brogues no matter what the season while no Frenchman, it seemed, ever left his house before squeezing into a Breton top, affixing a beret at a jaunty angle and accessorising the whole look with a garland of onions. And I was definitely annoyed at my parents' lack of Spanish heritage if it gave you a free pass to go to school every day dressed as a matador and then to clack your castanets with your mates in the lunch break. 
Back then, if the English ever did get a look in, we were depicted in dull grey suits for the fellas and some flouncy skirt number for the women. And now, after two years of lockdown, the rise of global brands, the triumph of athleisure, I presume that most of those national costumes would be switched out for something from Nike. Bring back the grey suit and a trilby, please. So good on the ambassador for standing up and representing his nation with such impeccable and memorable elan. On the walk back to the office, I got to wondering how often he would be using his ensemble. Might he be up for lending it out once in a while? Well, no harm in asking. Also this week, I met two people who are feeling their way around a business idea that essentially makes them the middlemen between architects and novice clients. I'm going to write a story about them, so I'm not going to overburden you with a description here. But they were great. I could see where they added value for busy architects and how they would give someone on the commissioning side of the equation both an easier life and a clearer understanding of what would be required from their role. The middleman or woman, the agent, the go-between, even the retailer who stands between customer and manufacturer has in recent times been cast as, well, an unnecessary expense. But I rather like these people. They save time for starters. Take the headhunter, although I imagine that that term is banned these days. Lots of people, including me, you see, have resorted to LinkedIn as a way of reaching a vast pool of potential candidates in a few clicks. But it's always proved an utter waste of time when it comes to hiring journalists. If you're a regular listener of this column and wondering what happened to the zookeeper who wanted to be our foreign editor, I hear he's now thriving at Facebook. While our creative director, Richard, wisely engaged a specialist recruiter who sifted CVs, knew the market and generally helped him secure the staff that he needed, over on our side of the office, just this week, we had an application to be our fashion reporter from someone who could not spell the word journalist and another who mistakenly attached some weird template that they'd used to help them fill the form out. And I know that we should be more tender with people, but if you think that you're applying for a job on Monacle or The Monacle, let alone Manacle, I will not be seeing you any day soon. Although, that could be a potential business extension, come to think of it. Manacle, the aspirational magazine for incarcerated white-collar criminals. Although, I imagine that the travel pages would be of little interest to our new readers. Thank you very much to our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. Well, speaking of travel pages, let's cross now to Finland, where the Helsinki Book Fair is currently ongoing, and our Petri Burtsoff is there. Petri, hello to you. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, now, I understand from research, but also from, from having been to the book fair previously, that the Finns are among the most avid readers in Europe. So how important is this book fair for the locals? It is. It is. It is really important. You're absolutely correct. Finns do read a lot. Um, I dug up some research, actually, and it, it shows that 77% of over 10-year-old Finns say that they've read at least one book in the past uh, six months. So, you know... Um, it comes there for us as, as no surprise that this book fair attracts nearly 100,000 uh, people, which is a lot in a country of 5 million people. So, yes, very important for the locals. Mm. And, and what is it about you that, that you love about this book fair? I mean, I personally, of course, I, I love the chance to sort of meet and greet with, with my favorite authors. But, I mean, what I really think sets Helsinki Book Fair apart is that you don't come here only for the meet and greet. You also come here to listen to... Uh, 
a lot of interesting talks. I mean, there are hundreds of different uh, themes for, for, for lectures and discussions uh, and, and things like that. And you really get to go sort of, um, sort of behind the scenes in how the books are made and, and understand the thinking of your favorite authors as, as, as well. So I think that's, that's, that's one of the key issues. Mm. My favorite Finnish uh, author is uh, Python Statovacci. I'm never sure if I pronounce his name right, but his debut was that wonderful b- uh, book, My Cat Yugoslavia. And just in front of me now, I have the brand new um, proof of his new book, which is called Bola. And I think that that's going to be absolutely huge in Finland. I wonder if there's much of a, a push for, for, for local authors like that going on. Yes, absolutely. And Python is actually here uh, performing a theater, sort of a short theater play, um, and talking about his latest book. He's also, I, I, I can really recommend Bola, a great book, and I, I love my cat Yugoslavia. I think Bola is even better. And it's, both of those books have actually been made into stage plays here in Finland as well. So yes, it's a, of course, for the authors, it's a great chance to to uh, push, their, push their work here, because, I mean, yeah, 100,000 <laughs> people people and you know you get to chat with with a lot of them mm. and sort of talk about talk about your books in more detail uh, and of course uh, sophie oxan uh, huge huge there as well i uh, do give python and sophie big kisses from me if you see them um listen there's great books uh deals on books i mean can you get away with it without spending a, a fortune <laughs> no no you can't no you can't and you need uh i actually have two tote bags because last time i had one and it was not enough i mean you have this I mean, I'm just looking at now, I'm looking at three euro books. And these are not, you know, these are not uh, some like outlet books or old books. These are, these are sort of like, well, of course, not the latest books, but books for, you know, key books from the past couple of years. And you can get them for two euros, three euros. So amazing, amazing deals. And actually, a lot of the publishers also, they decide to, to um, unveil their latest, uh, latest books at the, at the book fair. So that's also, you know, you, you, there's, actual, there's actual news as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and kind of slightly oddly, there's also a wine and food fair going on concurrently in the same venue. Yeah, that's one of those things. I mean, I never really understood it, but I'm really happy about it. <laughs> I, I guess it's just, you know, wine and books go, go well together. And, and yeah, you know, after a long day of sort of talking to your favorite authors and, and, and attending talks and discussions and, you know, buying a lot of books. What could be nicer than going to the wine fair and, you know, just tasting some lovely Italian red wines when you read that latest Ferrante book? So, you know, I, I actually come to think of it, it kind of goes hand in hand. Fantastic. Petri, I'm going to let you get on with it. You go and grab a glass of something lovely and sit down with a great book. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that's Petri Burtsov speaking to us from the Helsinki Book Fair, which is currently ongoing. And if you're interested in any of those Finnish authors, notably Sophie Oksanen and Peitim Statovacci, uh, then you can find interviews with both of them in our archives on Meet the Writers. Uh, both have so much to say. And also spoke to, to their translator, mostly, I think it's David Haxham, who, who does all Peitim's work. Um, but very, very interesting people and heartily recommend all of their books. I also recommend my guest in the studio. Studio, uh, if you're a media outlet looking to hire, as Monocle <laughs> is. That's um, I haven't written any books, Georgina, so where's this link going? <laughs> um, because he is everywhere. He's a, a big freelancer. You don't want to come and work here, do you? Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, there's lots uh, of vacancies. There's a vacancy for a fashion editor. I yeah, think I can yeah. spell Chanel. <laughs> Two ends, right? Yeah. <laughs> At least you can say Glasgow. Yeah. It's just listen to the ABBA song, guys. That's, <laughs> that's all you need to know.
<laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Um, so, one last story, I think. What, what, yes, what, what taking us nicely on that uh, ABBA link there. Yeah, it's a really interesting story, actually, about the big drive in the past couple of years for a new investment vehicle. So, we all know that things like pension funds uh, and things like hedge funds, when people are investing, they're wanting more ethical investments. So they're trying to not invest in things like fossil fuels. They want to invest in things like renewable technology. But something else that they can now do and that pension funds and groups are now doing is investing in song catalogues. Uh, and actually, it's a bit of a story about recovery for the music industry in the last couple of years because, you know, the height of uh, the sort of 2000s to you know 2014-ish you had the destructive power of things like Napster and all the copycats and things like that you had you know the ability to copy CDs from friends and things and put them on your iPod uh, but the streaming services and yes they may not be paying artists the quite right amounts that they should be getting uh, but that has seen a boost in the finances for music uh, and so now one of the biggest things to invest in is the back catalogue of musicians and bands uh, and this is a story in the Times that David Bowie's back catalogue is up for auction and then it's expected to reach around 200 million pounds Uh, and he's just uh, sorry dollars and he's just the latest in a long line of stars with big back catalogues doing this Uh, so uh, Neil Young has uh, done this Bob Dylan has done this recently Tina Turner has done this uh, and these are for huge sums Uh, and often of course it's for artists uh, perhaps towards the ends of their career or who maybe have sadly passed away Uh, but it is really interesting but it can happen as well, uh, famously, to uh, current artists. And Taylor Swift is one of those. And there is a slight downside because her rights were actually sold essentially from underneath her. She says that she wasn't warned. They were sold to someone she particularly hated. And so now she is re-recording her entire back catalogue and having it swapped on streaming services so that the people that have actually bought the catalogue can't make as much money from it. It's quite extraordinary isn't it? Uh, uh, and I mean that that's actually happened to a, to a few people over the years. Yeah, yeah it is and it you know it, but it is interesting that this is now something that you know it's it's trying to predict as well because the, the important thing about this catalogue is you know trying to predict who will stay a timeless artist who will people want to keep hearing in 20, 30, 40 years and also how you use the works how what you allow the music to be used for whether you allow it too much to be used for adverts or not what the rights are for using it in films because some artists have been incredibly protective over that about allowing the rights out um, you know particularly I can think off the top of my head I know from having done right stuff for music and TV stuff before you know things like the Beatles are incredibly hard to get approval for Uh, and it's what kind of legacy do the artists have to control how their music is actually used later on as well yeah absolutely um and so david bowie how much is that going for i mean it's expected to perhaps go for 200 million dollars and just put that in perspective so uh last december bob dylan sold uh, his 600 strong catalog to universal music for 218 million pounds neil young apparently offloaded his for 109 million uh so you know it's just getting these whopping great returns for your back catalog well, and so let's talk about ABBA then, because of their, their whole new reinvention. Yes, the avatars. I mean, yeah, it is remarkable. I think it's quite remarkable that they were building this venue in the Stratford, which is the old Olympic Park, and no one noticed. No one spotted in the planning applications that this is what it was going to be for. And I think it'll be quite remarkable that, you know, it, it is how you put your catalogue to work. 
next year when that show opens, there'll be three venues in London, you know, a major city, but three venues which every night will be doing ABBA shows in one form or another. Mamma Mia still on the West End after a couple of decades. They have a Mamma Mia kind of movie party restaurant place in the O2. And then they're going to have actual or ABBA avatars in in Stratford doing shows every single night of the week. You know, it is remarkable to have that kind of catalogue that becomes so loved. And especially for a band that fell out of favour in the 80s, were kind of mocked, uh, and then have had this resurgence of, you know, people passing it on to their kids. And, you know, if you speak to any, you know, DJ or anything like that, you can, you know, or anyone that's ever DJed at a wedding, they'll say, you know, your fallback go-to is always whack on some ABBA and people will, you know, enjoy it. It's an absolute floor filler. But I mean, the, the extraordinary thing is, as you say, three venues in London without ABBA themselves no. having to be anywhere at all. No, exactly. <laughs> you know, they put on those rather unflattering suits and, you know, did a week of recording or whatever it was for the avatars. And then uh, that's it. You know, their music will live on forever. And it is about, you know, what artists do. And, you know, if, if they're still alive and they can control it and plan it, then they can protect their legacy, which is what people like, you know, ABBA are doing. But then sadly, you get people who have passed away and, you know, you wonder, oh, was this actually what they would have wanted for their catalogue is that how they wanted it done so it's a bit of estate planning for artists now to look around and think okay what am I going to do yeah absolutely Vinny thank you so much for being with me and just to reiterate about how to pronounce Glasgow when you call me last night I from Glasgow let's hear it yeah. let's play out there with Ava and Super Trooper this is how you say the word okay Super Trooper beams are gonna blind me but I won't feel Somewhere in the crowd there